0: Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Lisa Brennan-Jobs. Before we get to our chat, I want to say thank you to our friends at Chase Sapphire, who helped make today's episode possible. When I'm not in the Goop office, I might be flying back and forth to New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle, to interview the guests you hear on the show every week. I love getting to sit down with these incredible people and much prefer having a face-to-face conversation, and traveling has its pros and cons. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve card, there are some pretty sweet perks, though. You can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide, and an even better bonus is that those points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll go for that hotel upgrade, or spring for some more legroom, or extend your next road trip through the weekend. And if you're in need of some travel tips and inspo heading into the holiday season, just go to goop.com and check out the holiday travel guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves.
1: When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is The Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, Founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Lisa Brennan Jobs is a writer and author of a memoir called Small Fry. She's also the daughter of Steve Jobs, which is what her memoir centers around. This book is cathartic, heartbreaking, and profound. I highly suggest you read it. Today, Lisa explains the right we have to tell our own story. Lisa shares what it was like growing up with her dad and the pain she was forced to grapple with in order to forgive her father for being absent for much of her childhood. We talk about how her difficult childhood influenced her life and what it's like being a parent now. Most importantly, we talked about the power we gain when we take control of our own narrative.
1: The funny thing about writing a memoir was that the more I wrote, the more these themes started to emerge as if I'd planted them there. But of course, I'd only discovered them. And so I thought it was maybe something about human nature or story, that there are actually some themes that repeat through our lives and if we can find them.
0: Okay, let's get to my chat with Lisa Brennan-Jobs.
1: I don't know if you
0: would agree, but in having, and and particularly at that 18-month stage, I felt like, who are you? Like, I really felt like these are not, I didn't create these children. They didn't, I mean, obviously I did genetically,
1: but that they're just these different, strange creatures. They came through for their own reasons. Yeah. If I tell him everyone's sleeping, maybe he'll go to sleep now. I'm like, look, (laughs) <laughs> the flowers are asleep the trees are asleep your sisters are asleep he has two half sisters your dad's asleep i want to go to sleep you know yeah is he a terrible and sleeper? then he's like all right he goes, no <laughs> i'm just i'm a sucker mm. i'm a sucker mm. i was gonna be the tough parent i was like i am gonna be no then i left while my husband did the sleep training i just left That's the thing to do. It is the thing to do, isn't it? And to get a snoo. Did you have a snoo? No. I heard I mean I just I Googled it and there are people who are like, I can't turn it off and I was like, Oh no (laughs) It's gonna be like
0: If you have another child
1: get a snoo. snoo. Oh
0: really? That's the best thing ever. Yeah. It'll change your experience in those first. Three to four months.
1: So the first three to four months, what would happen is we would put him in the little bassinet that I had special ordered from Berlin. Because
0: mm-hmm, of
1: course, as one does, so pretty <laughs> felt. And then you can use the basket for other things, sort of modern but nicely made. And and ten minutes he'd start, you know that you know the beginning of the whale. You're just like no. no. But he was falling asleep on me after I nursed him. And keep in mind, the book tour is in two months and I have publicity before that or whatever. Right. So I have to sleep. So he was falling asleep on me. So in the middle of one night, I was like manic, which I don't usually get, but I was like, I was awake and I was having revelations. And one of them was, I'm his mother and he's falling asleep on my belly. And whatever the crap they say about kids not sleeping with their parents is, this is where he wants to sleep. Yeah. And I'm sleeping. I was like propping myself up with the, I know. You know <laughs> And then he was on my belly. He was a nurse and then he would like just sleep. So I woke my husband up and I was like, do you mind if he just sleeps with us? And he was like half asleep and he said, oh, no, all the studies show that mothers only roll over their children if they're drunk or drugged. So fine. But I'm concerned you're not going to get enough sleep. But then he woke up and I was snoring. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. So then, so for the first four months, actually, I slept really well. Oh, good. He just slept on my belly and then he moved to... The vertical position, and then he moved to beside me, and then he moved to a little further away, and then he started kicking slightly, and I was like, it's time to move right. him. Right. Then they start moving sideways. Yeah. yeah. So and then, then he- I moved him onto his crib mattress beside our bed, and he did not seem to notice the difference. Yeah. So then I moved him into the crib. Yeah. There you go. So it was actually, the sleep thing has been fine. I'm just, right now, I think because his language, he's talking up a storm. Yeah. And I think that because of that, something's going on with his sleep and his brain and everything's changing. Yeah. But I like all these changes. It's fascinating. It's been so amazing. But yeah. I am, yeah, I am in awe of people who have more than one child. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. You'll, you'll be surprised, I'm sure. I don't know. I don't know. Really. <laughs> <laughs> you like the knowing smile. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I already, I have two stepdaughters and our son. So I sort of feel like maybe it's enough, maybe it's okay. Yeah, that's probably a full house. When, when everyone's there, it's a pretty full house. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feel like, oh, it's just us again. Right. But I was an only child, and so I'm also used to that. Right. With half-sibs, right? So... But I didn't grow up with them. Right. Really. Right. And my husband was one of three, and he has three. And people do settle on the number they were. It's true. People do have a preference.
0: They do. But when, how would your childhood have been different if
1: you had not been alone? It's impossible to divorce from everything else. Right. And then we would have had to have more money. And I can't imagine two children moving around as much. And But not alone. Oh, my God. It could have been so great. Right. I mean, right. Because you think of, like, someone you can roll your eyes at across the table or someone who knows your parents totally. the way you did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean... To, speaking of babies and books are not dissimilar, right? Your memoir is so beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank it's you. so, I loved it. I devoured it. So well written and observed and and heartbreaking and funny but, and <laughs> polarizing. You know, it's and inter- hilarious. Yeah. You're just going to die of laughter. <laughs> but it was, it's so, I you know, my heart went to you. Just even the loneliness, I think, of being a child amongst adults, the
1: move, and sort of the lack of connection. It's It's probably you don't have a sibling, so then you spend 10 years of your life writing a book, so you'll have a bunch of people that understood your childhood.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Building all the connections after the fact. But I know, I mean, was the impetus to write it in part because you have been written about and your life has been documented not from your point of view?
1: I was saying that as the way that I addressed a question on the PR tour after the book because people were saying, you know, people said that, you know, a couple family members, everyone else has been like, that's exactly what I remember. Right. My parents, ex-boyfriends and girlfriends and my old therapist and everyone in the town. But I've been asked, like, you know, sort of why did you write a book? I think especially before the book came out and it was thought perhaps it was a celebrity memoir, I had to kind of justify the Mm -hmm. very fact that I would write. And one of my ideas was, well, wait, I've been written about, so why can't I write? Doesn't everyone have the right to exert their art form upon the world and then the world can do with it what it, you know, as honestly and as hopefully with artistic merit as yeah. possible? But I think the impetus to write was just that I was always observing and that I was always a writer. And so mm-hmm. then when the idea that I could not seem to find another subject to write about that was as compelling as this one, but didn't want to write about this, I mean, when the idea that I had to write this book, get it out of the way to some degree to write other books, I was mortified. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really feel like I had to correct some story or grasp the reins of the story because other people had written about it. I think it was just inside me that I wanted to write the story. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily in response to that. I mean, I didn't really engage with any of the press. Right. I didn't read the stories. I haven't watched any of the movies. I didn't read Walter Isaacson's book about me. It is annoying when other people take the narrative, but I think more annoying than that, more deeply frustrating is when you don't have a handle on your own narrative right. yourself. Yeah. And I'm not sure even if other people hadn't written about me, I think I would have felt a little bit snowed by feelings of confusion and shame and mysteries that hadn't been solved and wanted to write my way out of those
0: things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everyone has a right to their own story, right? And their own – to own their life and their perspective on their life and probably specifically for someone like you who's been framed in the context of your father to sort of
1: assert yourself as like, I am the hero of my own story. Thank you. Right, which was a kind of bold thing to do in a certain way. Like, oh – Yes, my father was really famous, but this is a coming of age story about a girl. I'm, mm-hmm. You know, basically, I used my father's celebrity to get a lot of attention for what is essentially a very, very ordinary story. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's or pretty commonplace, story yeah. with maybe more dramatic polarity, or yeah, I mean the the lights and darks are perhaps the contrast is higher, maybe just because yeah. you know my father wasn't only rich, she was really rich. Or my mother wasn't only poor, she was really poor. Mm -hmm. And my parents weren't only young, they were very young. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, but I think a lot of the points of the story are fairly common or human. Mm -hmm. It's really weird how the more common something is, the more specific it is. It's very weird. Like if you write something so specific, Yeah. Then other people can relate.
0: It's true. It creates a tremendous amount of resonance. And I was talking to a friend and and not specifically about your book, but she was sharing about her childhood, a similar massive wealth disparity and how she would steal from one parent to line the pantry of the other. No. Um. Yeah. But clearly oh. you're yeah, but you're not alone in in the sense of having on one extreme so much, and yet so little. Like there was like the emptiness of his home was so marked yeah. or like the lack of heat. I um, know, And
1: it wasn't so bad. I mean, again, it was California, <laughs> right? So it became a point of contention that was true. Yeah. But I think at its very root, it was about something else. Totally. And those were the things I could seize upon. Like, you don't have heat. I'm being abused. But really, it was something else that was bothering me. And I was able to get a bunch of these things to seize upon, which were also true. Mm-hmm. But they weren't the real truth. And he was very good at not responding unless it was the real truth. So we we reached an impasse. Yeah, People are like, Lisa's coming over. Hide the silver. No, but I was (laughs) thinking how the thievery stuff was, of course, I was like, oh, I can put that in. Oh, right. But then what happened was it was almost like high school English. Maybe your high school English was better than ours. But there is a feel. You take books and then you examine the themes, Mm -hmm. right? And it seems as if – and often it's fiction literature. And often it seems as if the author planted these things for you to unearth Mm -hmm. when you were reading or interpreting. But the funny thing about writing a memoir was that the more I wrote, the more these themes started to emerge (laughs) as if I'd planted them there. But, of course, I'd only discovered them. And so I thought it was maybe something about human nature or story, that there are actually some themes that repeat through our lives, and if we can find them. And I think theft. I read somewhere that, what was it, like white middle-class women write memoirs and they write about stealing or something. And I thought, oh, God. Am I just a cliche? Like I'm a, you know, no. is that my big thing? I'm like, but what, but of course also writing a book about that, that necessarily has to include other people yeah. feels like theft or a little bit like murder. I mean, it right. feels intensely, feels like a violent act. Yeah. And so it was interesting to note that theft, you know, of objects feeling ripped off, trying to rectify some feeling of being ripped off, I think. I guess. And also stealing other people's stories because they're necessarily entwined with mine. And I can do the best job to try to present them in a way that is honest and full and without rancor and also without excess, without including parts that aren't necessary for my story. Mm -hmm. But still, I have caught them in my net, and Mm -hmm. that is a kind of theft, Yeah,
0: no, that's really interesting and I'm sure probably incredibly difficult to navigate, particularly when everyone knows who everyone is, as is the case with your family. I read the theft as some sort of correction of trying to create some sort of balance or like a need to, I don't know, like rectify something. Like to sort of as you're standing in the
1: middle holding... Two extremes, you know, in your mother and your father. I think especially when my father, be, the book begins when I'm taking little things around my dad's house. And at the time, the emotional charge, the desire for these things did not match the monetary value or mm-hmm. even sentimental value of these sort of scrappy little tubes of lip gloss. And yet it felt as if they were absolutely necessary mm-hmm. and would, I had this magical property where I would take them back to New York to my apartment and they would somehow fill in all the missing pieces. So it was clear when I had that feeling that it was beyond any material need. And yeah. then I thought, oh, maybe people who shoplift, like this is how they feel. And it was completely different than I would have imagined. Like they need this thing and it doesn't even have to do with the thing itself maybe. I mean totally. it's not – obviously shoplifting out of necessity is a different thing. But – that was the only time I felt it like that, and it just felt so, so strong that it was funny. Yeah. No, and it's,
0: I think, probably anticipatory of loss. Like, I remember when my brother's husband, Peter, died, and I had no clothes, and I was in New York with my brother for two weeks after, and I wore – they would sort of interchange clothes, and I had a pair of Peter's socks, and I just – I refused to give them back.
1: You're just wearing them and wearing them. I wear them. them. Yeah. I mean, they
0: have holes in them, and – And Ben has given me a handful of things, but, like, every time I'm in – because all of Peter's stuff is still there, and I'm always sort of, like, tempted to pilfer, you know? It's just because there are only so many things that even have the imprint of his energy. Right. So I I thought that was very human. And isn't that the weird thing to notice in yourself, that desire? Like,
1: oh, I want to take that. What a weird thing. Yeah. I want that (laughs) Hodgkiss sweatshirt. Like – yeah. What? I, I thought my mom was pretty cool about that though. It's sort of the book ends where she's like, I'm like, can I please just keep them? Just tell me I can keep them. Just say like, honey, you can keep everything. Mm-hmm. She was like, Oh my god, you have to take it all back. Are you kidding? Yeah. Persephone, she took the seeds from the underworld and then and I was just thinking like, oh mom, I just I don't want to hear about the myth. I just want to keep the stuff. <laughs> I, had like I want this lip gloss. Bowls <laughs> that were clinking. I mean, just chipped. And she was like, you have to return it. Otherwise, you're bound to the place. That's interesting. You're stuck with it because you've taken part of it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be stuck. Yeah. But I think it is a way to get yourself stuck with something.
0: Don't go anywhere. We'll get back to Lisa Brennan Jobs in just a second. If you feel like you're overdue for a family vacation or a dinner out with your best friends, I feel you. If you're looking for any incentive to pull the trigger, there's always Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And when you're on the road or on vacation or eating out, this all adds up, as you know. So might as well get rewarded for it, right? The other big perk of the Sapphire card is that you receive up to $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases charged to your card. So maybe you'll try out that new dinner spot with your friends, or finally take a day off and get out of Dodge, or maybe it's just a scenic train ride to work for you. It all adds up into more rewards with Chase Sapphire Reserve. And if you happen to be in need of some travel tips leading into the holiday season, head to goop.com. Once you're there, check out the holiday travel guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire. At Coop, we have many, many, many conversations about food. And we just completed our brand new test kitchen where our food editors get to develop their recipes. Everything from healthy soups to salads to cocktails to desserts. They clearly make a lot from scratch, but they also appreciate a good snack that's ready to go. And skinny dipped almonds are pretty ideal. They start with crunchy roasted almonds and a little organic maple sugar and sea salt, and then dip them in a thin layer of rich chocolate. They avoid artificial flavors, colors, and sugar alternatives. They're gluten-free, non-GMO, and delicious. Skinny-dipped almonds come in a variety of flavors, like cocoa, mint, espresso, raspberry, and peanut butter. Our food editors debate over whether the cocoa or espresso is the best, but I don't think you can really go wrong. Visit SkinnyDip.com to learn more, and you can get 20% off your next purchase using code GOOP20. That's G-O-O-P-2-0. Okay, back to my chat with Lisa Brennan-Jobs. What do you think that your dad would have thought about your book? Do
1: you think he would have found it fair? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I think he would have been really upset because he didn't write the story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think he would have been really upset at Walter's book. I think he would have been really upset at my book. But then, of course, I do have a part of myself that knows some lovely parts of him that I imagine where he's a just a generous and kind and interesting presence in my life who's not as, as concerned with his ego and reputation. Yeah. I think that it certainly is fair. Mm-hmm. And I think that that wouldn't be the part If there were a part of him that got upset about it, it wouldn't be because it wasn't true or it wasn't fair. So the imaginary part of him that I interact with around it is the part of him that could abide truth and fairness, even if it was not flattering. Right. And he did have that part, but it just wasn't all of him. Totally. And I have in the book, there's a point where he, he's like sick and he's like, not super sick, but sick. And he was like, you're not, you're not going to write about me, are you? (laughs) and i i was i was kind of prepared for him to ask because i was starting to write and i felt horribly guilty about it and i said no and the way that i justified that to myself is i'm not going to write about you i'm going to write about me and i'm surely i am allowed to do that but i'm sure in his definition that would would have been included but i didn't have it in there and then i read again Philip Ross Patrimony, which is lovely, mm-hmm. a lovely memoir about his dad. And he has this scene where his father like has an embarrassing moment where he poops in his pants and the father says, please don't write about it. And he says, okay. And it's all in the book, right? right. And I thought, oh, I have something kind of like that I can use. And I think there was something important about not portraying myself as a pleaser mm-hmm. because it would have just backfired. Every way in which I could portray myself as human and flawed and not trying to abide by everyone's wishes was a kind of inroads into creating a character. Mm -hmm. I really had a lot of trouble trying to figure out the tone of this. And that, going to all the places where I was ashamed, all the places that were kind of secretive and that were maybe wrong that I'd done... Those were the things that opened up the tone of the book Mm -hmm. for me, where I finally found the perspective I could write from.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, as I said, it's beautiful. And I felt, you know, as someone who has consumed some of the stuff about your dad and just understanding his impact on the culture, that it seemed very fair and incredibly nuanced and you were able to sort of hold his the way the, those moments of beauty and generosity and brilliance with also like the coldness and the cruelty in a way that I think is so important because we so desperately want everything to be binary right I know. people are good or bad or yeah. kind or mean and that yeah. is just not how we
1: are we're all no. deeply flawed and fucked up. And but I think you kind of have to forgive yourself a lot before you can make someone else have all their angles. Yeah. There was a the part that I was writing about in high school. I was dating someone at the time who I'd known my whole life. So it was really helpful actually when I was working on the book. And I'd written the high school part and I secretly, and I mean kind of secretly, not even I hadn't put it in words to myself, just really wanted you to feel bad for me because Mm -hmm. it was so hard. And my father said the same. I mean, when he was dying, he was like, that was so hard, wasn't it? And we just, it's almost like a mystery. Why was it so hard? Mm -hmm. And I, I was trying, I remember trying so hard to be good, to be perfect, to be generous and just everything backfiring and being hard. And so when I was writing the, that part of the book, I, 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 I just kind of wanted to manipulate the reader into feeling bad for me. Mm-hmm. But that sort of thing just doesn't work on the page because the reader feeling manipulated bristles. And also it it there's a myth of powerlessness that you're ascribing to if mm-hmm. you make yourself a victim. And my ex-boyfriend said to me, Lisa, I knew you then and I'm just not buying it. Like you always, you got what you wanted. And it's true. I mean, I could have, there are so many things I could have done. I tried to go to boarding school. That was a no. Mm-hmm. But I could have moved back with my mom earlier. I could have, there are many, I, I did a lot of things. Eventually I moved in with the neighbors. I spent much more time at my mom's house. I talked to everyone I could about what was going on, mm-hmm. you know, even though that probably wasn't my father's preference because secrecy is the the enemy of people who feel, oppressed, right? Right. (laughs) So when I really looked under the surface of it, I just felt badly that I hadn't been able to... about all the things I'd done wrong and that I hadn't been able to make it work and that... and I remembered places where I had had agency. And once you do that, then everyone else becomes much more forgivable Mm
0: -hmm. because you
1: think, oh, right. My father also was just trying. Oh my gosh, he was so... and there's another thing writing this is like, it's changed my future because... It changed so much my perspective of my past Mm. so that where people were mean or heartless, now I see someone young and failing at what they're even trying to do. You know, my father didn't know how to be with kids, so he was was cold and weird and it had nothing to do with me, and yet he kept on trying. Right. And it's very hard to keep on trying at something you're obviously bad at. And he was smart enough to know he was bad at (laughs) it. You know, and it's like, oh, because he, he had me when he was 23, and he was already not an emotionally mature 23 year old. Right. Like, that is so young. I am, I'm 41 now. Right. And so it was an interesting process of time traveling to get to go spend time with these incredibly young and idealistic people. Like they were trying. Right. And just feel a lot of compassion. Once I'd, once I'd, I'd copped to my own, what is it like, copped to my own, schemes and deviousness and silly shames somehow, they became, it became less skin off my back to notice that they were people too.
0: And that with like sort of a different operating system, I mean, I remember that scene where you Convince your dad and Lorreen to come to your therapist. I know. And you explain about not having heat in your room. And I know. So, I gave
1: my stepmother the best so best line in the book. It's such a good line. So
0: desperately wanting them to say goodnight to you, and then the silence, and then her saying, I don't know what to say. We're just cold people.
1: Yeah, she says, We're just cold people. And delivered fairly coldly. But what a. <laughs> it's such a great I mean, moment. it's such a great moment because. It has so much in it. One, it's like you're like, but you know, what a horrible thing to say. But then you think, what a weird thing that a kid is barking so much up the wrong tree. You know, right. she's just saying like, girl, you're not gonna get this from us. Right. And in a certain way, it's mean. And in a, in another way, it's the kindest thing you could do is tell someone the truth. And it is just it is the truth. And I don't know, you know, it's the truth about her. I don't. My father wasn't cold, but his attributes added up to a similar. You're barking up the wrong tree. Right. Like there was no Your, doesn't seem
0: like you ever like cracked the code and how to understand or play him or like necessarily get what you wanted from any interaction. Like, do you feel like you understand? It's so funny him? that you say
1: that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly right. That I wish I could have said it so well myself. I did not crack the code, and I kept on trying and feeling resentful about other daughters having this access right. somehow to someone's heart. And I could not get access. It would it would arrive and be magnificent. Really, my father would not have had so many, so many dear friends, soulful friends, unless he was soulful himself. Right. But but then it was gone. And I didn't know how to get it to come back, and I didn't know why it appeared and disappeared, and I certainly did not have a way of
0: mm-hmm.
1: of softening his softening him when I wanted or making it consistent like it seemed to me that it was
0: you you had a childhood of like exuberance and love and then coldness and retraction and that there was the inconsistency of his
1: relationship was always been cold or if he'd always been withdrawn right it would have been one thing but it was so inner it was the intermittence yeah and that I didn't know the key to that intermittence yeah. That would kind of drive me insane.
0: Totally. And I think that that's true of any relationship, romantic like, or
1: otherwise. And or... then we would connect and be all right. It'd be like when we were having a good time together, he was really like great, mm-hmm. really a dear friend with a value system that I agree with to this day and then gone. Yeah. And then at a certain point, I sort of felt like I had to kind of get on with my life. I couldn't hang around. But mm-hmm. I think he, as much as he didn't want the kind of kids that hung around... I think that also made him sad. Right. And then he punished me for that, I think. Do
0: you – I remember that moment where you guys seemed to sort of commune around – were you, like, standing on the beach watching? You were talking about the universe. Does this ring a bell?
1: Well, there's a, there's a part in Japan where he was like, the universe is spoked or something like that. But the nice part about that was that he'd, he'd come and surprise me on my school trip – and that he was kind of just available and his yeah. just same simple self. Yeah. He didn't have a lot of bluster. He often was very awkward, didn't know what to say, very quiet, boring sometimes, <laughs> you know, unless he was in his charisma mode. I mean, I think he was amazing. I mean, I so I had written about that presentation at Next. Uh-huh. And then I thought, oh, gosh, I have to watch the thing. Because it was online and I had never gone back and watched it. I had been there. And then... Many years had passed. I think I was eight or 10. I don't remember. And I thought I should go back and watch it. And I remembered it being exquisite, like just exquisite, not full of bluster, but soulfully exquisite Yeah. and funny and dear and, you know, this like my handsome, charming father and this beautiful technology. And so I thought I would go back and watch it and Perhaps it would be colored by my own perspective, or by the fact that it was my father on stage. So it's already mirroring some sort of exaggeration everyone gives their father, right? Mm-hmm. And so I went back and watched it. And it was actually better than I remembered. It was, I mean, if you have a chance someday, watch it. It's so good, this next presentation. This is like he's playing a video on a movie screen and there's also some animation happening and everyone's like standing. In, 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 it's like a standing ovation. That's how long ago it was. That's how early the technology was. But in front of many people, he was so good. And then sometimes on a one-to-one basis, he was amazing as well. But also sometimes really awkward and really quiet. Yeah, A mutual friend has said, people don't talk about how quiet he was. I mean, it'd just be like 10 minutes would pass, you know. Yeah. And awkward. My mom said in high school he'd tell jokes and like nobody would laugh and people would turn (laughs) away awkwardly, you know. So just
0: (laughs) – It seems like he was – connected or tapped into some sort of like higher consciousness or sub- higher something. I mean in terms of like connecting the entire world which he sort of did through technology and then it's sort of almost like he was operating on like two sh- two chakra planes, right? Like this like incredibly evolved spiritual place and then sort of in his base chakra like from that like place of ego and fear and I didn't know Yeah, him and like I associate
1: it with I mean, I really don't know the chakras so well, but I associate <laughs> the base one with like bluster. like I think, or id. But I think it was like he had this really exquisite value system. And I sometimes felt angry that I was the recipient of his value system in some ways, but that he didn't even uphold it himself. Mm-hmm. So then I thought, is your value system just a sham to make me feel as if I, the way that you're, you're, you're making me live or want me to live is okay when you don't even uphold it yourself? But i talked with – this has been a haunting thing for me. Like, wait a minute. I, I really believe in that value system. Am I just the fool who got hoodwinked mm-hmm. by what felt like truth but really was just deprivation? And I think the answer is complicated. It's something like, well, the truth did veer too much into deprivation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's. it's not so clear. But I, in talking with some of his friends, because it's haunted me a little. Like, you know, he didn't believe in certain – things. He didn't believe in some of this blustery Mm -hmm. crap. And and you know, a world where wealth was so stratified Mm -hmm. and nepotism was rampant. And he knew at a at a fundamental level, it's like unfair of me to take authority about my father's value system, I feel sometimes like who am I? I mean, I was just one person who knew him and who and I loved him. But with that caveat, he knew that he understood when he was on his game what was really important, mm-hmm. I think. Like whether you do your work, your work, and whether you love the people you love, and all the other stuff, like all the other stuff you can buy is just, he knew, it was just like, a, it's not important. Mm-hmm. So it made me upset because I couldn't figure out why he had delivered such a bracingly clean and beautiful value system and then wasn't, and then would blink on and off of living it. Mm -hmm. And I I think some of his friends would say, like, he lived it a lot. He maintained a degree of simplicity, which was rare. But I just figure that it's hard for people to, it's hard for people to live their value system sometimes, especially when they're living it in such a large way. Yeah. When they're living their life in such a large way, it's hard to to hew to it. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a
0: soft side. Discover their new Asra bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Asra is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Asra collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. The standards that he set for himself and the world and design, I mean, like, impossible to achieve those all the time. But, like, clearly he had so much pain, you know, like, which was passed on to you. Probably you transmuted some of it through writing this book. I'm assuming it was probably pretty cathartic.
1: I think it was pretty cathartic. My mom was saying you have to do it. I was like, no. Like, I feel like like I'm – going to write a book about myself and I'm the kid of a celebrity shoot me you know but he wasn't just a celebrity no but even that whatever somewhat like that it's not just going to be about me writing that I'm going to be writing this thing and everyone's going to assume what it is and I'm going to have to go against the grain of that assumption over and over again and maybe I'll fail of course maybe I'll fail and it will just be more schlock in the world but she was saying you have to do it because if you don't come to terms with your history, then you repeat it, which seems like the cheesiest, like, okay, mom, I also took ninth grade history. Mm -hmm. But I think she was right. Because there were a lot of things that I rethought about while I was writing the book, and that actually had different or opposite meanings than I had originally taken, which changes everything. Mm -hmm. And then I don't think a lot of it, a lot of my knee jerk reactions probably won't carry forward into my family, which is Altering,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's probably, and it's maybe not a spiritual coincidence that you gave birth physically, like in as you delivered this book into the world. Like you won't probably carry it forward on your
1: son, right? Well, that's the hope, right? Yeah, and you have then, then other, work this you know, stuff and then, out, and then also, I mean, I think that's also the hope of artists. Although I don't think artists, art, art history, or any sort of art is an altruistic job. It's mainly about. It's mainly very individual and selfish, and about pleasure and need, not about I'm going to do this to help people. That's not mm-hmm. that's not a reason you do art, but you hope that you are able to get through yourself to sort of transmute something so much that it that other people don't have to do the work, that they get the shortcut, mm-hmm. you know. But for me, I mean, also therapy, you know, like therapy's one hour or maybe two or who knows three hours a week, you know. But if you're writing you're you're just you're, you're in it all the time you know even if you only write like pen to paper or keyboard two or three hours a day you're still you have to be thinking about it all the time and I'm always, i almost had to cut everything out you know i mean i couldn't have plans really because right. if you have plans then the writing isn't the boss yeah and so if i finished my writing day and i kind of knew i was done then i could call a friend and see them if they were free but if i had a plan I would somehow have made it more important than the writing, and it would ruin the writing day. So it was just a very lonely... What I'm trying to say is that the process of transmuting, however successful I was at it, was very intense. And it had catharsis to it, and also just like all the work in between the, mo- the points of catharsis. Yeah. All the slog that didn't really feel like it was going anywhere. Right.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure it's also, like, an incredible mental exercise and then the like, the emotional exercise of getting it out or even it's sort of the ordering of it and the searching for themes and the greater contextual meaning and then yeah. the, like, felt experience of, like, who were you when you were 10, yeah. you know? Yeah,
1: and sometimes you'd have a feeling just wash over you and you'd remember mm. or you'd remember how you felt. Mm-hmm. And that was – like a gift, you'd be like, "Oh, right. I can write that because I remember that now, but I didn't really do it that way. I kind of started writing scenes, which I didn't really know. They said, go oh, okay, write some scenes. And I thought, what's a scene? I've been mean, writing essays, but you can't the convention now is that you write memoirs and scenes because it's easier. You can't just write a rant. You ha- this and then this ha- you know you have mm-hmm. to give people a place to be, I think. And so I, I kind of figured out how to write a scene and then started writing more, which was basically like a story but that has a beginning, middle and end. Mm -hmm. That's true, but that is extracted from the mass of living. And then wondering if I was going to remember enough of them and then finding there were more and more and more, most of them that you would never want to include in a book, but some of which led me to ones I would want to include, Mm -hmm. you know, but the ordering came later. I mean, I had just had so many pages, you know, and then so many repetitions of meaning. So I could cut out, you know, we went on many skates, but I can't have many skates in the book because they're so much the same. Right. And I didn't really think thematically until the end. Right. Well, it really came together. Do you still,
0: like, do you feel connected to your dad? Like, do you talk to him? Do you like automatic write with him? Do you, are you into anything that's like
1: Woo woo. I'm, I'm listening to and <laughs> thinking, are those options? Yes. Will he write with me? Yeah. No. I had a friend a long time ago when I was living in Italy and she said, Oh, today I've been feeling my grandparents around me. You know that feeling when you have someone who's dead just around you? They've been around me all day. And I said, No, because I never had anyone I was close to die. I wouldn't say that necessarily happens to me, but I do sometimes have days when I think, Oh, I miss my dad. Mm. And th- that is the good thing about missing someone when they're dead is you you get to live and exist with the parts of them that were the most wonderful. Right. You really don't need to think about the difficult parts because you have a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. So that has been nice. And I do think sometimes like, oh my gosh, it definitely caught my mother off guard how much she loved her grandson. Mm. Like. Before he was born, she said, I'm not going to be one of those grandparents that's like showing pictures and just showing more and more pictures. And then after he was born, she says, I can see their eyes glaze over and I just can't stop. Yeah. And so I think about with my father, oh, it would have been fun. It would have been wonderful. But I don't think we were ever going to get to that point. It's like, just would have been like, for example, he was so neurotic when I was dating always like, are you going to marry him? You know, after the first date. So weird. (laughs) Sounds familiar. Calling. Does it? (laughs) like calling the guy like crazy. Oh, not where that.
0: Where there's yeah. no space.
1: Well, maybe not, but crazy. Like the sta- like the guy comes over to pick you up for a date and he's suddenly discussing marriage, you know? I mean, just intense. And you say, "But dad, I'm not in love with that guy." And he says, "Well, there are other things besides love." And you think, "What? What is this? Why do you need to marry me off? I'm not ready. I don't love this, you know." So so I do wonder, you know, when I met my husband, he was obviously so great. But I wasn't necessarily ready to be dating again. I'd been dating this person I'd known since I was a kid for seven years. So it just took me a while, a few months to be ready to date kind of. Mm-hmm. And and then to realize, oh my gosh, I I want to marry that guy. That guy's great. Or I want to be with that guy, you know. So I'm not sure how I would have done that with my dad around. Even though the place we've reached, he would have would have made him – At least as far as I know him, over the moon. Right. I'm not sure he would have helped me get there. So I do sometimes, I mean, obviously I have conversations with my, like, I know you like my husband, but you would have been a disaster when I was dating him. So how do we deal with that?
0: This might be a random question but I you know remember when your dad died and just I was living in Soho at the time and sort of the incredible outpouring of grief aclo- across the globe and the shrines that were constructed in front of Apple stores and what is that did you, going through that experience of this sort of collective global grief for your dad as you were I'm sure grieving yourself and your aunt and Laureen and your mom, I'm sure as well. Like, Is there a part of that where, did it amplify it? Or were you sort of like, who deserves to grieve in this moment? I don't know, I just remember in that, watching people grieve him and thinking about what it meant to us as a culture and then what it must have felt like on a personal level for you and, and your half siblings. Was there sort of like a, let us, this doesn't belong to everyone?
1: Yeah, I think, and I think I have a little bit of that in the book where people kept on coming up to me and saying, he was like a father to me. And I thought, oh, really? <laughs> he wasn't totally like a father to me, so does that mean he's yours? You know, sort of weird feeling of having to share. Yeah. I think it's unpleasant. Yeah. In a certain way. And then in terms of the grief, it felt so powerful. Like, where is this coming from? What did people associate him with that yeah. they're personally... I think he maybe gave people a feeling and you know it's such a weird thing to be talking about him because my book really isn't totally about him but I think I mean it's kind of about me but I think he gave people a feeling that they could do what they wanted to do that they yeah. should follow their heart and they could be creative and so it's kind of like this positive father figure in a certain way and I think yeah. people responded to that message but I don't know how much it had to do with him I think it had more to do with the message yeah but I did find it moving and I also just don't consider myself the spokesperson of his, you know, image and his public persona. So it yeah. felt very disconnected. And then grief for me felt like, you know, just it's just exhausting. Like yeah. very physical.
0: It is very physical. And it but it is there's like a ranking of grief that I think isn't ever really discussed. Like who deserves to feel sad? Like who who gets to be the most sad? Who gets to be sightly? Less sad, I know that's a strange I don't I don't know if that resonates with you. I've certainly felt that in
1: my life like and who who gets to hold the truth of someone, right and it's usually not such a fun position to be holding the truth of someone that's more complicated and less pleasant than everyone else, yeah, it's like a horrible thing to be kind of holding the bag, yeah. So you're sad, but it's complicated. And for other people, it's fairly uncomplicated. Right. Sadness. And so there's also a kind of jealousy for that position, the position of the outsider. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Because the inside, as much as it might seem to be closer to the molten core, isn't necessarily. Right. Totally. And to be, yeah. I I mean, it would have been fun to work with my father, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Or be friends with my father in certain periods. More fun than it was... At certain periods to be his daughter. Yeah. So I yeah, I think part of writing the book was just to separate myself from the from holding all the complexity. Yeah. Because it's just no fun to be this kind of harrowed, heavy bag carrying person. Right. No, it's
0: felt it read very much like a reclamation and a sort of like, I don't, I won't be def, like I can define this a different way, or I can define myself first in the context of these things around me. And these, these larger-than-life characters. I always
1: feel s- sad for those people who are associated with famous people and then their lives get wrapped up in the, in the creativity of the other person. Right. So, I mean, that's why I didn't want to write a memoir. Right. Because I was like, oh, you know, because it's so close to that in a certain way. And maybe it is that. Who knows? But my mom would always say, and I think it was my father's perspective too, you know, kind of mama may have it and papa may have it, but God bless the child who has their own. Mm. because you can't like you don't want to live on someone else's fumes right That's sad yeah it's and, and then the other thing this other like you know because both of my parents studied with that same Buddhist monk but kind of, kind of something like it's better to do your own job badly mm-hmm. than to do someone else's job well mm. and I do believe in that like there are people you see and you think like break away this isn't serving you you can do your you can you can have your your're to get a chance to be a human alive and Healthy enough on this planet to do something, is pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to just hide in someone else's totally. someone else's thing?
0: And and to sort of assert your own brilliance as not as as a distinct um, thing to someone else's, you know?
1: Right. I mean, I don't think you know it's so different. I'm I'm a writer. I'm not. And not intact, but clearly in your bloodlines. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Mona's an exquisite writer. Yeah, but it's so different. It's not like I was, you know. Of course, there's competition. Like, hey, stop. Right. You know, you're not hunting I, for VC
0: money in Silicon Valley to. I'm create definitely not the next hunting for VC money. <laughs> no. What are you going to do next? Are you going to write fiction?
1: No, no. I'll write nonfiction. Oh, interesting. Are you already working about on another myself. project? Oh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm really excited about. I'm like delirious with joy. I'm starting to write again. I don't really know what my project will be. Interesting. Who knows how long it will take me. I mean, this one took a long time. I think I can imagine
0: that this took an incredibly long time. And yeah. the next thing you do will be much
1: speedier. I think so. Um, yeah. I, I imagine different projects take different amounts of time. But one of the problems with writing a book about yourself when you're young is that you have the knowledge that your perspective or the angle you're hitting it at isn't quite right because you know, you know when something reads well. Mm-hmm. But you're not old enough or mature enough or wise enough or experienced enough to get that angle right. So you almost have to keep on working knowing it's futile mm-hmm. until your tone, your perception achieves the wisdom or the experience that it needs to to do the writing well. Yeah. So it's like it was like a lot of waiting to grow up. Totally. While and then, still working
0: on it. And then, I, ironically, as your as your son ages, it will all, it will shift your perception or your perspective entirely.
1: Right. When I read it again, when I'm 60, I'll be like, Oh my god, what did I write? But I think as you
0: grow, <laughs> it'll yeah. and you encounter your child at certain ages that you experience with your dad. It'll twist the whole thing again. That's true.
1: Yeah. Already, I think. I mean even not having my dad around. You don't realize viscerally how, how that might be for a child or you don't have distance or perspective on that until you have a child or you know a child well. There's something about how important my son is to his father and how important his father is to my son that I kind of didn't quite get until he was born. And then, so he's, we're in the hospital still, and my husband's, like, chatting with him and holding him. And I think, oh, so you guys are just going to have your own – oh, right. You guys are going to have your own relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're important here. Oh, wow. And it, what relief to not have the whole thing on me, yeah. you know. But also just by the time I was my son's age, we'd moved a bunch of times. And we'd moved houses a bunch of times. And – the fact that we haven't had to – first of all, for me, I mean, moving when you have a kid, I don't know how my mother did it. She's very young, but wow. Yeah. And then the stability I feel like my son gets from the fact that we haven't moved a billion times mm-hmm. is nourishing for me. I think, oh, what a relief. What a relief not to put him through – you know? Yeah. But I, mean, I, I hadn't seen it from that perspective before, the moving. Yeah. And you reparent yourself through parenting.
0: Or that's People been my say experience. that.
1: Yeah. I think it'll be
0: interesting as, as he gets older, whether you feel that way too.
1: I know. I, I wonder if I'll be too. It's like, I thought I would be strict, but I think I'm too permissive. I need to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's just like, he's lovely. But sometimes when he yells, I think, oh, what can I get you? Sure. <laughs> like, and I think, oh no, that's not it. That's not how to be a parent. But he is, yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Well, if Exhausting. And Exhausting.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lisa Brennan-Jobs. For more on Lisa, head to lisabrennanjobs.net. That's B-R-E-N-N-A-N. And get yourself a copy of her memoir, Small Fry. It's amazing. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for listening to the Goop podcast. Because Thanksgiving is on Thursday this week, We'll be releasing our next episode tomorrow. Gwyneth is hosting with an old friend, so be sure to tune in. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash
1: the podcast.